Kings, but it's slightly different. There's more focus on the temple building, and there's less mention of Solomon's sins. And then the rest of the book is all the kings that follow in the line of Solomon. Judah's kings, both good and bad, right down the line. Let's look at some key verses. Um, these are these are key verses I selected based on the theology I think that they show here. You you're probably not that familiar with verses in Second Chronicles. There might be one you're familiar with, but we'll come to that uh, at the end of class today. So let's go to Second Chronicles six, twelve through fifty three. Got to get there. And this is Solomon's dedication prayer. And it's a little bit longer than we see in 1 Kings. The temple's been built. Now he's going to dedicate it. He's going to pray to God. Sermons on prayer today as well, or at least Paul's prayer for believers. So I think this will, this will just help us to see what a good prayer is and some theology here in his prayer. So let's pick up in verse 12. Then he stood, Solomon, before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and had set it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it. So he made a podium, he made a platform to stand on. Not a podium, but a stage, we could call it. And he stood on it, and then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. So I'll talk about in the sermon today how the common way to pray in the Bible, Old Testament and New, is is like this. Whenever they bowed on their knees, that was a more intense, more serious prayer. And so he's dedicating the temple. It's been built. He's going to dedicate it. Everybody's gathered around. Here's what he says. O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. Keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. So this is, this is a God like none other, and he keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. And, and in the Old Testament, that promise, he would bless the nation if they obeyed him. Uh, who has kept with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him. So he promised that David, his descendants would be blessed if they obeyed, and that there would always be somebody on the throne. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth, have fulfilled it with your hand as it is to this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not like a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. It's very interesting that Solomon says this. Why? What's that? He's not going to follow his own prayer to God, is he? Yeah, so he acknowledges here that he knows this, and yet he's not going to necessarily follow it most of his life. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. So that's the focus of Chronicles is David and on the temple. Uh, But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. So God's presence will be in the temple, but really God can't be contained in the temple. He realizes that. Sometimes scholars look back and they think the Hebrews were dumb and they think they didn't understand things. And so you, you read about the pillars that upheld the earth. And you know what people say today? They were so dumb they thought the earth was flat and that there were pillars under it. And, and sometimes even Christians will say, you know, they thought God could be contained in a temple. Well, no, they didn't. They understood that that was God's special presence in the temple, 
but he can't even be contained on the earth. The highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to prayer, the prayer which your servant prays before you, that your eye may be toward this house day and night. So the idea is that God's manifesting a special blessing there in Jerusalem in the temple. His eyes toward the house day and night, toward the place which you have said that you would put your name there to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray towards this place, hear from your dwelling place from heaven. So why did the Jews pray towards Jerusalem? Because they felt like God would hear them. Not that they were being like the Muslims who, who pray towards Mecca. But they knew God's special presence was there in the temple. And it, it gave honor to God to face that way. So Daniel does it. And Daniel, even Jonah, in the belly of the whale, says he will pray towards Jerusalem. Hear and forgive. And so this is interesting here. He kind of, uh, picking up in verse 22, he brings back what Moses had said in Deuteronomy. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, punishing the wicked by bringing this way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. If your people Israel defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and they return to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you, then hear from heaven and forgive their sin. And he just goes on through these different things that might happen. When the heavens, in verse 26, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain and they have sinned against you and they pray towards you and turn from their sin, then hear them, forgive them, bless them, give them rain. Verse 28, if there's famine. Verse 32, also concerning the foreigner who is not from your people Israel. When he comes from a far country, for your great name's sake, and your mighty hand, and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray toward this house, then hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. He's praying that God would even hear the foreigner, the Gentile. Even though God never promised to hear that, there was some indications, of course, with Abraham's uh, seed blessing all the families of the earth. But he's praying that even a Gentile could come and pray to the one true God. Verse 34, when your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you shall send them, they pray to you, uh, hear them from heaven. Verse 36, when they sin against you, for there's no man who does not sin. There it is, total depravity right there in the Old Testament. No one is free from sin. And you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy, like they're going to go into captivity, so that they take them away captive to a land far off and near. So you're in Babylon and you're reading this and Solomon's already prayed this prayer hundreds of years ago. If they take thought in their land where they are taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity and have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been taken captive and they pray toward their land which you have given to their fathers, and the city which you have chosen, and toward the house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, their prayer and supplications, maintain their cause, forgive your people who have sinned against you. So he's saying, if this happens, if we get taken into captivity, which is going to happen 
about 400 years later. Then hear their prayers when they repent. Bring them back. Bless them. And this would give you great hope if you're reading Solomon, the son of David, and his prayer that was given when the temple was dedicated. The temple that is no more, this great and beautiful thing where God manifested his special presence. Uh, that would give you hope in captivity. Well, I, I encourage you to read the rest of it there. I have it marked till 53, but it stops in 42. But the Shekinah glory comes in in chapter 7, and then they start sacrificing in the Feast of Dedication. Go forward now to chapter 21. Here's something that's um, sometimes forgotten if you read it before or not realized, that Elijah wrote a letter, and it's recorded in Scripture. The prophet Elijah, who's probably got more words about him and from him in First and Second Kings, uh, he wrote a letter. And so let's work through that as soon as I get a sip of coffee here. Any questions so far? 21.11. Do I have the right reference here? Let's see. Yep. So, speaking here of a, of a king. Um, Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot and led Judah astray. Uh, let's see. Who was this? Jehoram. Jehoram's the king. He's a bad king. And he is building up false places of worship, idols on the mountains. Just like Solomon's wives did, he follows. And he led the whole city astray. Then a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father. So Jehoshaphat was uh, Jehoram's father. And the ways of King Asa, king of Judah. But have walked in the way of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, the ones who were constantly idolaters, and have caused Judah, the southern kingdom, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot, as the house of Ahab played the harlot. Ahab was the king of Israel that was particularly wicked. And you have also killed your brothers. Because when he became king, he wanted to make sure he stayed king, so he wiped out his whole family. And you also killed your brothers, your own family, who were better than you. How would you like a prophet of God to say, your brothers were better than you, and you killed them all? Behold, the Lord is going to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and all your possessions with a great calamity. And you will suffer severe sickness, a disease of your bowels, until your bowels come out because of the sickness day by day. How would you like to have that prophesied? I mean, you, you could care less about God. You're doing your own thing. A prophet shows up and says, hey, God's going to make you suffer for this disobedience, and your bowels are going to come out slowly day by day. God doesn't tolerate sin, particularly the sin of his leaders. Verse 16, Then the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabs who bordered the Ethiopians. And they came against Judah and they invaded it. They carried away all the possessions found in the king's house together with his sons and his wives so that no son was left to him except Jehoaz, the youngest of his sons. So this is a, an attack on Jerusalem. That's, it's not one of the big ones. We often think of the Assyrian attack or uh, maybe the Egyptians or especially the Babylonians. But these are just some Philistines and Arabs and they get all the way into Jerusalem, take away the family, the king's house, all his treasures. So after all this, verse 18, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable sickness. That came about in the course of time. 
at the end of two years that his bowels came out because of his sickness and he died in great pain. And his people made no fire for him like the fire for his fathers. So when they would bury a king that was very famous, you know, they would have a big celebration, make a big bonfire. Uh, he was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem only eight years. So he was 40 when his bowels came out. And he departed with no one's regret. No one regretted the fact that this king had died. And they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. That's where the honorable kings were buried. The tombs of the kings set aside just for the line of David. They, they didn't even bury him there. They didn't light a fire to remember him by. And no one was sad to see him go. So Elijah's prophecy came true. Of course, it's God's prophecy. And uh, just one more example in the Old Testament of what God does with sin. He takes it serious. He takes it serious. What, what would have happened if he would have repented? Well, God would have relented. That would have been all in the plan of God, but he didn't. And God followed through. God wasn't playing around by sending this prophecy. Key people, same as First Chronicles. We have David, Absalom, David's third son, the one who revolted, caused so much trouble for him. We have Joab, the general of David, his nephew as well. Uh, Hithophel, once a counselor of David, then becomes a counselor of Absalom. He hangs himself because his counsel is rejected by Absalom. And then Nathan the prophet who rebukes David for his sins. Even though in, in um, 1 Chronicles he doesn't really rebuke David. Uh, he just tells him the promise that God will give him. Or we could say he doesn't rebuke him as harsh as is recorded in Second Samuel. There's a commentary I've already mentioned. First and Second Chronicles by the Tyndale. If you'd like to get into some more detail on these verses. Okay, let's cover... The only interpretive issue I could come up with. This isn't a real academic scholarly one because it's pretty obvious. But it's the one that most of you have probably heard if you've heard a verse. Second Chronicles 7.14. I actually saw this on a septic truck, Mike. Uh, a, a, a truck that pumps out septic. And this was all over the side of it. This is a sometimes business people's motto. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So who's heard that one? Just me? It's very, it's, it's used a lot in conservative circles, politics. So here's the question. Is that referring to America? Is that referring to any nation who repents as a whole? Is it referring to the church? Or is it referring to Israel? So we're not asking what it could, could apply to if we take the concept and the principle out of the text. Where could we apply it? But what specifically does the verse refer to? Well, it's just, it's easy. What's, what's 2 Chronicles about? Israel. Is America even around? I guess the land mass is, right? And there's some Native Americans. But this is often a verse quoted they wouldn't say necessarily that it's given to America, but it's almost quoted in that sense. If we'll just turn back to God, look at this promise. Look at this promise. He will heal our land. We'll, we'll have all the problems sort of solved, or at least m most of the sin. Now, is that a principle in the Bible? If we repent, is there forgiveness in God? Yeah. Is there a sense of healing that takes place? Is there, uh, what else does he say here? If they seek his face and they pray to him, 
They turn from their wicked ways. Then he'll hear them. Is that true? That is true. So we, you know, let's say I was teaching on this text or, or preaching on it. I could take that application, that principle, and then now apply it in general, especially to individuals. And I think even to the church. Uh, we'd have to be more careful uh, applying it to a nation as a whole when not every person in the nation is a Christian. So if we're going to apply it, I, I think the broadest we could apply it is churches. If churches in America, I'll say it like this, if churches in America turn back to God, because there's so many churches that have gone off track, then our nation would be a better place. Our government would be a better place. That's just truth. That's just principles of the Bible applied into real life. But we can't take this passage out of context and say, well, it applied to Israel, so it applies directly to America. That's not going to be the case. But principles, yes. Principles of forgiveness, yes. But I think the way to say it is, if you're going to say it, if you want to use this verse, you can use the principle of it and say, if our churches return to preaching the gospel, and there were more people being saved, and then those people turned around and, and got involved in our society, honoring Christ, then our nation would look different than it is today. But it's never going to be perfect, and it's never going to be a theocracy under a king until Christ comes back. Any questions on that? I didn't, I, it's not even an interpretive problem. I just put common misinterpretations. <laughs> we're going to come to a more famous one when we get to Jeremiah. Y'all know that one? Jeremiah 29.11. That one might be on your refrigerator. So just take it down when we come to Jeremiah. Um, again, principally it can be applied, but that's not the way most people think of Jeremiah 29.11 or 2 Chronicles 7.14. So it's really talking about God's people. God's people who once claimed him but have turned away. If they'll turn back, there's forgiveness. There's restoration for the backslider, even a whole nation like Israel. Again, you're in captivity. You read that verse. Wow, that's hope. That's hope. And if you know, Jeremiah said there's 70 years, and let's say you're born 30 years in, hey, you might get to see that return. You might get to see that healing of the land. What, what kind of hope is that? Of course, we're going to find out when they get back, there's still problems because they don't have the once and final king there's still problems in Ezra and Nehemiah when they do go back to the land. Well, let's just choose D for Israel because that's the context of what's being said there. Let's just, uh, since we have a few minutes left, let's take an update on where we're at in the Old Testament survey. Uh, you don't have this in your handout, but it's a, it's a graphic that I pulled from my seminary notes. We've been looking at a section of books in the Old Testament. What do we typically call these? The historical books. Some of you guys, that's your favorite books of the Old Testament. I like the historical books too. That's from Joshua here, all the way through 2 Kings. And even though the, the Jews wouldn't put it in this framework, we can also say First and 2 Chronicles, which lines up really down here. First and 2 Chronicles. Now in English, on our English Bibles, we call this the historical books. What are the historical books about? Well, they're about a lot of different things. But in general, they're about the rise of David's line. Because in, in Joshua, they come into the land, they conquer, they stop when Joshua dies, they need a king. In Judges, there's no king in Israel, so everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes, which means idolatry gets a foothold, and the Philistines get a foothold. They're already there, they weren't pushed out in Joshua. 
So this is a constant struggle. Idolatry is a constant struggle. The Philistines, the intermarriage with the Philistines, that continues until David is king over Israel. Then David subdues the Philistines. If there is any idolatry left, he's, he's getting rid of that. And David is a man after God's own heart. God establishes him as king and gives him the promise, the Davidic covenant, that a king will rule on his uh, throne forever. Now, the New Testament's going to pick that up and say, that's Jesus. But they're not quite sure when that's actually going to be fulfilled because things get worse after this. And it seems like every king after David gets worse and worse with a few blips back up for good kings. But in general, the nation's going downhill and then it's taken away into captivity at the end of Second Kings or the end of, of Second Chronicles. So things are not looking good for Israel at this point. But we're going to continue. Next week we'll go to Ezra and then look at Nehemiah. That's how our Bibles are arranged, uh, which is fine. We take them and we put all the historical books together and we try to line them up in order of chronology. So we're going to look at Ezra. They're going to come back to the land and then Nehemiah is going to be responsible for rebuilding the wall and parts of the city. But there's still problems. There's still problems. And they need a king. They need a king who will rule with perfect righteousness. Then we'll deal with the book of Esther, which kind of goes back. And that's it for the historical books. Then we'll go into the wisdom literature, starting with Job. So let's look at the order of books here. This is the Hebrew Bible. You go pick one up. Or when you're studying Hebrew next year, you can pick up a Hebrew Bible or get it. You probably already have it on your software there. This is the way that they're ordered. When Frank's in seminary studying Hebrew, it's, it's, uh, it's out of order. We're not used to this order, but this is the way they thought about it. So this is the same, the law, the Torah. It's the same as our Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The former prophets are pretty much the same, right? Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. What happens and what they call the former prophets, we call the historical books, right? What happens after Kings? Our Bibles go to Chronicles. That's the last book in the Hebrew Bible. That's fine. I mean, it's not in the order. Some people believe it's inspired. The, the King James and every Bible translator in English has never thought the order was inspired necessarily. So we're free, they believe, to arrange some of these into groups that we thought what might be best. So we generally say, look, these are the prophets here. Plus Daniel. And yeah, that's it. So we think of these as the prophets. These here in red are the historical books. Yeah, so we think of those as, and then we got one more, don't we? Historical, Ruth and Esther. But not in the Hebrew mind. You had the law, you had the former prophets, the latter prophets. And then everything else was dumped into one thing called the writings. Wisdom, poetry, some prophecy in there with Daniel. So in, in their book, Chronicles is the last thing. So in seminary, when we're going through this, in our Old Testament survey, we're going right down the line just like this. But our Bibles are arranged differently. So there we have this arrangement. You should be familiar with the English Bibles. Again, the order is not inspired. I don't think the order is inspired. I don't think we're in sin by putting Chronicles over here. Um, there should be a Second Chronicles, by the way, here. First and Second Chronicles. So this is our order. You should be familiar because, you know, it's going to come up where 
Caleb's leading men's Bible study, and he's going to ask you, Brandon, turn over to Esther 5. And you got to go quick to Esther 5, right? Because you know where it is. Or if you don't go quick, then we'll help you out. But, you know, you need to be familiar with it. You're reading the MacArthur Study Bible, and he says, this is a cross-reference. Zechariah. Well, where's Zechariah? Oh, that's near the end of the Old Testament. So if I can find, you know, Matthew, I can just go back a little bit. Or if I, if I find uh, Isaiah, then I went too far back. And Zechariah is a very important book. Lots of verses about Christ. Lots of verses about eschatology, the end times. So these are important. So generally, we organize ours by genre. You have the law. You have the historical books in order of chronology. Then the wisdom and poetry books. And then prophecy. Somewhat chronological. The, pro- the, the 12 prophets are hard to to get chronologically because we don't know. And then on into the New Testament. Any questions about that ordering of our English Bibles versus the, the Hebrew? We've got eight minutes for questions, discussion. It's important to know. It's important to know the genre because why? Those who took my class this summer, Scott, why do you need to know the genre of a book? That's right. That's right. So we don't go to Genesis and say, oh, this is poetry and Genesis 1. So it didn't really happen that way because that would be history. History records what happened. Poetry teaches us a lesson through poetic words, but it's not necessarily what happened. But no, the genre is law. And really, even history is in Genesis. Uh, Genesis is not. We think of it as the Torah, but most of Genesis is history. Um, So it helps us interpret the book properly. So when I taught on how to teach and study the Bible this summer, we spent a long time on genre, and it's not the most exciting thing to talk about, but it helps to know what kind of book you're dealing with. If we're dealing with a prophecy, we're going to expect prophetic figures, prophetic language. That helps us to interpret it better. And when people twist the Bible, they'll either take it out of context. That's the most common way. right? Just take that one verse and do what they want with it because it sounds good to me. But a second level of misinterpretation, really, that's a little bit more academic sounding, is when you just interpret it with the wrong genre. So they take Revelation and say, actually, Revelation's not prophecy. It should be over here in the history section like Acts. It's already happened. Everything in Revelation's already happened. See, right here, this Antichrist, that's Nero, and this thing over here in Revelation's already happened, and that's 70 A.D., Well, they just took it out of prophetic genre and put it in the history genre, which doesn't even make sense. But people have been doing that for some time. Other questions? If you don't come up with questions, then I'll ask you questions like I did Scott. You don't be that person, right? What happened to Habakkuk? Um, My daughter didn't like that book. Haley didn't like that book. So just like Second Chronicles, I guess, when she made this nice graphic, uh, she didn't like it. Too much blood. <laughs> Child labor. I think it was Haley, right? We'll blame her. She's not here. <laughs> Could have been on him, but we'll blame Haley. So, uh, yeah, Habakkuk. Part of the 12. Come on. What else? Other questions? Yeah, I got a hard one. Hard one. Uh, there he, Gary's right beside you. 
You know, Gary has a seminary education, so he could probably answer that. Yeah, I don't recall the specific reasons, but it has to do with the fact that um, he wasn't prophesying in Israel during the time before the destruction was coming. And, and the, not all of the 12 were either. So if we go back to that one, there's Habakkuk right there inside there, <laughs> the 12. Uh, not all the 12 were, because there's Haggai and Malachi are after. Uh, they come back. So... But for the most part, the, the, in, in the mind of the Hebrew, a prophet, and this is, this is closer to the definition, a prophet is telling you, turn back to God, turn back to God, and if you don't, this is what's coming. Wrath and destruction. And so that's what pretty much happens from the time Joshua dies all the way through the, the 12. It's, it's all about saying, turn back to God, turn back to God, or wrath will come, and if you keep on, it's going to get really bad to end times type of wrath, like in Zechariah and Isaiah. But at the same time, they're reminding them, if you do turn back, then God will restore you. He'll restore the nation. And even when it's the worst of the worst at the end times, there's hope. There's a Messiah coming. And so they didn't see Daniel's that because Daniel's writing in Babylon. And it had different aspects to it than you might see in Isaiah, Jeremiah, for example. But yeah, we think of Daniel as a prophet. And there's, it's all prophecy, right? So, but as far as all the details of why, there's probably more information out there. You pick up a commentary. We'll get to that, I guess. How about this? When I get to Daniel, I will try to give you some of the major reasons uh, after I study it that they did not accept it as a prophecy. But they did, did accept it as scripture, of course. Okay, other questions? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I went to um, in Genesis where it talks about uh, and saw coming forward. It says it's the picture of Christ and it says it's all in one book. Like every book they gave is Since they had all of those scriptures in the Old Testament, why didn't they believe in Christ? Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and actually, I'll, I'll answer your question, but there is one Psalm too where they have evidence of uh, Jews changing it so that it doesn't point to Christ. And I can't remember if that's Psalm 112 or 118 or one of those. And we've had to go back and try to figure out what it actually said, and we can do that through other manuscripts. Why didn't they believe? I would just say hard hearts, total depravity. Jesus says, you know, you're hard-hearted. You've steeped up your tradition, and when people trust in the tradition, it's hard to give it up. And uh, Or we could just go even deeper and say they weren't chosen, although Paul says there are some of Israel that were chosen, but... From, a, from our standpoint, they were just hard-hearted. They weren't willing 
to look at this person in the flesh who was about to die on the cross, for example, and believe that that was the Son of God. Some did believe, though. But those who were, who were the ones most against Jesus? The Pharisees. Why? Because they built up their whole life on the law and traditions and earning your righteousness. And if you're in charge and maybe even you got some money and business contracts flowing to you and people respect you, it's hard to give all that up and then follow this guy who looks just like an average person who's not coming in with his angels to conquer the world, but he's coming in as a humble servant. And so one of the things they do is uh, evangelists go into Israel today and just read Isaiah 53 in Hebrew, and people have never heard it. Even the Jews have never heard it. They go to synagogue and they go to the temple. They, they, not temple, but they go to synagogue and they do the orthodox worship like they try to do it like was at the temple. They can't do sacrifices. But they do go up to the wailing wall and they pray and the temple wall and all of that. And they want to rebuild the temple. But they did not see, Jesus says, the visitation, the, the first coming of Christ. They did not recognize. So hard-hearted because Paul says in Romans that it's not necessarily the mind that keeps us from believing, but the heart. In other words, we, we, we're hard-hearted and we don't want to believe until God changes our hearts. And Paul even says, you know, stiff-necked, all throughout numbers, they're called stiff-necked people. We would be just like them if God had not saved us. So, yeah, it does seem like they had all of this. And I think the Apostle Paul uses that a lot, especially in Romans. He tries to say, look, you had the oracles of God. How can you not accept this? Yeah, and he does mention, remember, the unforgivable sin, right? It's unforgivable. Why? They had all the evidence. They had more evidence to believe in Jesus than anybody's ever had in the history of time because he did all of these things right in front of them, like raise Lazarus from the dead. Who can do that unless they're from God? And they still rejected him. So Jesus said that's the blasphemy against the Spirit. Yeah. 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 And, and Jesus says that. He quotes Isaiah and he says, you know, you, you stiff-necked people. God's going to send a prophet. That was Isaiah. But Jesus says he's sending me as well. In, in Nazareth, when he preaches, he says, God sent me and you won't listen. And so part of your judgment is you heard me but did not believe. And that's going to mean worse judgment. Chorazin, Bethsaida, the same thing. They saw the miracles. They didn't believe. By the way, you can get the Hebrew Bible translated into English. There are different versions out there that, that maintain this order. But yeah, as Heidi, right? Heidi said there, there might be some changes in it here and there because translation is somewhat interpretive as well. Well, let's pray. And then next week, make sure you're just scanning through Ezra. We're going to cover the book of Ezra uh, next week, Lord willing. Lord, it's great always to intake your word, to open the Bible. And I just pray that we would love it, that we would not set our Old Testament aside and spend all our days in the new. As important as the new is, we need to know what it's founded upon. And we need to go back and see the history of Israel. So that we could learn lessons. Paul says uh, we should learn from them. It was written so that we as Christians could learn not to walk in their ways. So give us that information. Move our hearts to obey you. 
and not suffer your discipline. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.